Hello, and welcome to episode 2.1 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are Marie Hawes and Sheila Woodruff. Hi, Marie and Sheila. Hi. Hello, Victoria. Uh, so, just in case we have any new listeners, or anyone who uh, didn't listen to the three of us on the first episode, let's introduce ourselves. Marie? Well, I'm Marie Hawes. I live in Tallahassee in Florida. I'm a PhD student in Renaissance literature, currently working on doing research for my dissertation in Washington, D.C. And I'm the child of missionaries who live in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And I'm Sheila Woodruff. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I've been a teacher, student, writing consultant, and most recently have decided to be a stay-at-home mom to my rambunctious little 14-month-old. Um, I am also a child of religious parents. My dad is a pastor in the United Methodist Church, and um, I've kind of followed along that vein. Victoria? Uh, thanks, ladies. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. As I said, I live with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist Podcast in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, and I'm an adjunct instructor at Crown College, where I teach English and sociology. Uh, like Marie, I'm also working on a dissertation, so that's a little bit about who we are, and now a little bit about today's show. So today is the first in a four-episode series on feminist history. Since it's the first, we're going to start at the beginning, uh, and the beginning of feminist history is uh, first-wave feminism. So first-wave, what does that mean? In feminist terminology, history is divided into waves rather than uh, eras or epochs, because, uh, well, for several reasons. First, because it's really difficult to cut off one period of history from the next, the term wave instead focuses on the ways in which these periods flow uh, almost seamlessly from one to the next. Hopefully you'll be able to see some of those uh, flowing through lines as we progress through the waves of feminist history uh, into the second, third, and then fourth in subsequent episodes. The term wave is also interesting in a different political sense uh, because it's a very feminine, feminized term because waves are fluid and liquid um, just like women historically have been labeled negatively because of their fluidity, their liquidness. Um, so some feminist historians have used that term to kind of push back against um, periodization as male-dominated. So the beginning of the first wave of feminism as we know it um, is pretty much thought to be on July 20th, 1848. And what happens on July 20th, 1848 is the first National Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. At this convention, uh, we have the signing of the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments. 68 women and 32 men signed this declaration, and it's modeled on the Declaration of Independence. Here's an excerpt. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, so I'm sure if you're familiar with history, or even if you took high school history at some point ever, <laughs> that was uh, familiar to you. We've got two words added, just uh, not all men are created equal, but men and women. And while it might not seem like much, those two words, pretty huge deal as far as political history is concerned because those two words turn a critique of British tyranny inward. Instead of being about those people out there oppressing us, it, those two words argue that oppression exists at home. This is not the first time that such political reframing of American ideals like freedom and oppression occurs in the country's history. Sheila, tell us a little bit about historical connections between suffrage and abolitionism. 
Sure. Well, as most people know, women in both Great Britain and the United States were advocates for the abolition of slavery. Um, they spoke publicly on behalf of the movement. They wrote letters to newspapers, hosted abolitionist meetings in their homes, passed around and even wrote pamphlets about the inhumanity of slavery and um, problems that it caused apart from just the inhumanity to slaves themselves. Uh, one example, of course, is Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became the literary poster child for the abolitionist movement for a time. Um, others include Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, who, um, again, if you know your feminist history at all, um, will probably recognize those names, even if you don't recognize some of the others that we're going to talk about today. These two women, among others, attended the World Anti-Slavery Convention in 1840 in London. Um, the aim of the conference was to discuss ways to speed the abolition of slavery throughout the world, but really in the U.S., um, Britain having freed its slaves seven years prior. Um, but before the conference began, its organizers decided to exclude women who had been campaigning for abolition all along. Understandably, um, the women were not too pleased with this development and um, as they were preparing to be delegates to the conference themselves and they campaigned to the board to allow their participation um, in the conference after all, but to no avail. So ironically, this um, Convention on Rights and Liberty demonstrated the lack of these things for, you know, the women who had been outspoken advocates for them for the past 10 years. And as you can imagine, this led um, that particular group of women to rally behind a new cause, um, their own ability to vote and have a formal voice represented in government. So um, this was, I guess, the precursor to the conference that Victoria spoke to earlier. Um, for a long time, the women's suffrage movement in the United States was predominantly the focus of rich white women. Um, in the U.S., at least this followed the trajectory, I think, of male voting rights. You know, at the beginning, landed gentry were the only um, people who were allowed to vote, and that opened up around the Civil War so that, you know, if you were male and white, that you could vote. It was kind of a similar development for various reasons. Um, this is emphasized in the movie, which we'll, we'll get to in a few more minutes, um, Iron Jawed Angels, with the introduction of Ida B. Wells Barnett's character. And we can talk some more about this a little bit later, but she was an African-American who championed a number of causes throughout her lifetime, um, an outspoken advocate against uh, lynching and for civil rights for all people, including blacks and women in the United States. And um, she appears all too briefly with Alice Paul in um, one scene and then even more briefly when the women are marching in Washington. Um, she argues with Paul that keeping Negro women, which is, of course is um, you know how they were referred to back then, um, she, she says keeping Negro women in a separate delegation undermines the status and equality of African-American women um, for the benefit of white women. Um, and that position pretty much held true through, through the second wave of feminism and eventually brought about a black feminist movement um, to make sure that African-American women were getting the rights that they needed above and beyond um, what women in general were being afforded. So anyway, as it turns out in the movie, Ida Wells Barnett stepped into the parade to walk with her peers as she said she would or not walk at all. Um, after that, though, she disappears from the movie entirely, which I thought was an interesting um, choice. And maybe we can talk some more about this a little bit later. Um, but to, to get back to the history here, uh, the suffragists, the, the, fur, the suffragists um, were politically involved in other matters. Um, as we talked about abolition here, the early first wave feminists were caught up along that vein, while later first wave feminists were active in the prohibition movement. And I think Marie is going to tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So, so like the uh, concern with abolition, the, the temperance um, movements and the protests against uh, the abuse of alcohol and the devastating results that that could have um, was also one in which women were heavily involved, and it's one that taught women um, that their actions could have results that were visible and measurable and that their voices could actually be heard of them putting themselves out there and trying to change things for the better. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was one of these 
major organizations involved in this movement, emerged from the Women's Crusade of 1873 and 74. And it was the result of this drive to abolish alcohol, since the damaging effects of the abuse of alcohol and other substances was seen as a danger to the home and to women. And the early tactics of the WCTU are very interesting in that they involved nonviolent protests. Um, most remarkably, praying, where women would go to saloons that they were actually not supposed to be entering, but they would go there and fall on their knees and pray, and they would protest the sale of liquor in this way. And so using tactics like this and vocally protesting things that the women saw as morally objectionable, the women who were involved in this were able to see very clearly that they could achieve results in working together. For example, in just three months, 250 communities became liquor-free as a result of their action. The WCTU, of course, was focused on the abolishment of alcohol, but its aims soon expanded from that one goal. By 1894, the organization was supporting women's suffrage because this was seen as a means of reducing the same kinds of home life problems and oppression that substance abuse was also seen to be a symptom of. So they were thought to be connected issues and that suffrage would help to solve some of the same problems that the abolition of alcohol would help to solve. Frances Willard, who is one of the presidents of the WCTU, went on to become the first president of the National Council for Women. We can see that there are very strong interrelations between demands for moral reform and for female rights. And really for both, there was a, a kind of religious basis assumed and I think this is something that we can see in our focus for today in the Iron Jawed Angels film as well. Great. Thanks, Marie. So, uh, that, that's a really great lead-in to the film itself, which, uh, as both Marie and Sheila have said, is uh, Katia von Garnier's 2004 film Iron Jawed Angels. Uh, it was made for TV originally. I believe it was uh, first aired on HBO. Um, but since then, since it's been about 10 years since the film's release, um, it's pretty widely available. We watched the film on YouTube, uh, so if you're inclined, you can get it that way. Um, I know it's often used um, as a teaching tool in schools. I've seen it both in history and in women's studies classes, and I use it in my own classes. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit today about... Um, some historical elements of the film, uh, some elements of the film that aren't necessarily historical, and uh, some of the broader messages that the film puts forward, um, both about suffrage and about women's roles in society in general. And um, as Marie, I think, implied, the first place we're going to go here is the connection between politics and religion in the film. So our protagonist, Alice Paul, who's played by Hilary Swank, is uh, someone whose politics and religion the film connects almost immediately. In one of the opening scenes of the film, um, Harriet Blatch, played by Margot Martindale, who's pretty much cornered the market in uh, sassy women on television these days, uh, Harriet Blatch is the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and she is trying to get Carrie Chapman Catt, who's the head of NASA, the National Women's Suffrage Association, to meet with Alice Paul. Uh, when Chapman Catt thinks that Paul might be a radical, Blatch responds, she's no radical, she's a Quaker. Uh, what did the two of you make of that statement? I had to laugh out loud um, as <laughs> someone coming from Pennsylvania and learning about William Penn and the Quakers and, and whatnot pretty early and often. Um, the, I mean, the Quakers are, I think, at times some of the most radical people. I mean, I didn't really mention it when I was talking about abolition, but I mean, the Quakers were at the forefront of that movement as a, as a religious group, and that, that just it really cracked me up. 
Marie, what did you think about that statement? Well, that statement struck me particularly when I was watching this film because for the past week or so, I've been in Washington, D.C. doing some research at Folger Library. And every day when I walk in from the subway, I walk past the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is right there on Capitol Hill. And um, so it struck me that a Quaker involvement in politics with an aim of uh, social justice and a deep concern with um, political issues is something that continues through today. And uh, they're doing some interesting work there. Actually, went in and got a pamphlet today um, to to hear what what the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Um, lobbies for, and uh, of course, a primary focus is peace and uh, peaceful resolution to conflict, um, but they're also involved in a variety of other aims, such as sustainable en- energy um, and uh, advocating for better treatment for Native Americans and uh, various aims like that. So I think we see with Alice Paul um, an older example of something that's still going on today with um the friends well i was just i don't know if it's worth um mentioning or not but i thought marie to um take up what you were saying there with the society of friends now and what they're advocating for um it seems like the the one thing that quakers advocated for that was for themselves was the suffrage movement and um i wonder The movie doesn't get into it much, and so this is just me speculating, but I wonder what that was like and the the pressures on the women, you know, to not feel like they were putting upon people too much to say that this was an important thing, but at the same time, they're speaking on behalf of, you know, 20 million other women in the country who don't have a voice. I just thought that was interesting since they spend so much time now advocating for others. Oh, certainly. So I think that part of this would be... Uh, coming from the idea too of you know that none of us are is free until all of us is free kind of thing. So even in an issue like the suffrage for women, it would be actually working for everybody. Yeah, that's a really great point, um, and I, I think the film covers these kinds of connections, um, both in the uh, the Ida Wells Barnett bits on race and in some of the. Um, intergenerational um, themes of the film, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but before we do, I want to um, weigh in on this. She's not a radical. She's a Quaker issue for a bit. Um, so like Sheila said, that line made me chuckle a little. I, uh, I found it pretty funny, um, both for the general reasons that you mentioned, Sheila, but also because it was coming from the mouth of Harriet Blatch, who, as Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter, um, would have witnessed firsthand these kinds of politics and religion connections. I mean, the the woman's Bible was literally put together um, at her kitchen table. So I I can't help but wonder that... um, um, whether that line was was meant to be a, a little winky, a little jokey. Um, do you guys know about the woman's Bible? A little. Tell us more. So um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who, as we've already said, is uh, kind of a founding foremother of, of feminism in the United States, um, she puts together this Bible. Um, it's a Bible and a sort of biblical commentary, Um, and in it she's thought to invent um, what later feminist theologians have called uh, the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is where feminist theologians sort of point out all the places in the Bible that women aren't, that women's interests aren't represented, um, and that the Bible gets, uh, if you'll forgive me my $5 grad school word here, uh, a little phallogocentric, uh, a little exclusionary. And because she's doing this work that, that places women um, much more at the center 
of um, traditional religious texts, she, as you might imagine, gets a lot of pushback from um, clergymen specifically. Uh, one clergyman derides the woman's Bible for being, quote, the work of women and the devil. And to that comment, Stanton responds in a letter, his satanic majesty was not invited to join the revising committee, which consists of women alone. <laughs> so That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I also thought that was pretty fantastic, yes. Um, so Harriet Blatch would have known, you know, that, that Radical and Quaker could and were uh, uh, in many ways, could be and were synonymous terms. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Something else we probably need to talk about when considering connections between um, Christian religion and the first wave is the notion of the nonviolent protest. So Alice Paul and her compatriots formed a group called the Silent Sentinels um, when they were fighting for suffrage, and they stood. Um, for two and a half years, six days a week, dawn to dusk, at Woodrow Wilson's gate outside the White House and held signs, um, lots of which contained Wilson's words, um, to show his hypocrisy about um, proclaiming American freedom but denying representation to women. Uh, it's, it's also... Um, important to note that about half the time the silent sentinels are protesting Wilson outside the White House there is a war on so pretty uh, pretty gutsy move to protest a sitting president during wartime um, can you guys talk a little bit more about um, these silent protests and how they might have connections to religion well I'll, um, I'll go just to talk a little bit in generalities I guess um, and, and I think we have to look at religion a little more broadly here. Um, fast forward half a decade or not, sorry, not half a decade, but half a century later. And you've got two pretty amazing characters in world history, um, Gandhi, and then a little later, Martin Luther King Jr., who use the same sort of nonviolent protest to bring about significant change in the United States and in India. Um, and obviously there are others who have done it more recently, but um, it's, it's, if nonviolent protest isn't necessarily a religious practice in itself, um, I think it's certainly born out of religious teachings. You know, Gandhi spoke from um, Hinduism and, and Dr. King from Christianity, but both were working to fight without word, or sorry, fight with words um, and without malice toward anyone. I had to say this, um, it was really interesting. We were listening to This American Life, an old episode, um, the other night, it was called Kids Logic. If you can go back and find it on their podcast, it's really fantastic. But there is one story that was featured uh, with a father who was teaching his young daughter about Jesus. Um, he was getting ready for Christmas and wanted to teach her about Jesus's birth. So they bought her a children's Bible and they talked about how he taught people to love others and treat them like he wanted to be treated. And um, he told her this was a really radical message for the time, and they discussed how it made sense and seemed like a great idea, and everybody should be able to love their neighbors. Um, and then they turned the page, and he was confronted. He said, I'd completely forgotten this came next, but he was confronted with a children's illustration of the cross. And he had to then explain to his five- or six-year-old um, that, you know, Jesus was then killed because his message was too radical. And, you know, she dealt with that and they talked about it. And about a month later, they were enjoying a lunch out on Martin Luther King's birthday because she was out of school, of course. And she saw a picture of Dr. King and she asked about him. And her dad explained that he was a preacher who taught others about love. She says, you know, did he preach Jesus? She, uh, she shouted and he said that, yes, he did. He wanted all people to be treated equally and love each other. Um, and she asked him, did they kill him too? And I guess that struck me in, in juxtaposing with this movie and some of the the really violent uh, responses to these these women, the silent sentinels, who you know all they were doing was standing in front of the White House. And yes, there's a war on, um, but there are other things going on too that you can't turn a blind eye to when you're trying to you know preach and bestow democracy to the rest of the world. And and I think you know those two things for me 
certainly say that this is a religious message and equality and standing up against injustice is, is nothing if not a religious um, practice and something we should all get involved in if we call ourselves Christian, I think. Oh, yeah, yes, this uh, connection between religion and not just nonviolent protest, but other means of protesting the government or political practices as well as something I was reminded of this past weekend as I was visiting a close friend in Harrisonburg in Virginia. That's where I completed my master's degree and in Harrisonburg there's a strong Mennonite community because the city is home not only to James Madison University but also to the Eastern Mennonite University so there's a strong Mennonite population there. And the Mennonite tradition is one that strongly emphasizes peace. So visiting Harrisonburg again and getting a little bit into those communities again, there are many people, many Mennonites who attempt to live below the tax line so that they won't be contributing to a military industry that they see as destructive and non-Christian with their tax money. They won't be adding to what they see as a problem. Um, and so that is a decision that could influence every aspect of living and how you deal with money and even trying to get food, really. Um, and there are also many people in the Christian communities in Harrisonburg, both Mennonite and of other denominations, who are very concerned with the effect that they have on the environment. More largely, social justice in, in general is very important to these interrelated communities in Harrisonburg, and that's for many due to religious conviction. And when I lived there, I lived in a Mennonite-sponsored peace house that was focused on the intersection of faith and social justice and aimed at providing a space for members of communities interested in either or both to interact with each other. So I do think that there is uh, today an ongoing connection between uh, faith and social justice and between religion and various kinds of nonviolent protests of the government, whether that takes the form of the picketing or a, a kind of lifestyle as well. Thanks. Uh, thanks, both of you, for sharing uh, those stories. I think they really add to our discussion. Uh, so before we leave the topic of nonviolent protests to talk about the rest of the film, um, we should mention that the iron-jawed angels are iron-jawed for two reasons. One, uh, because they are silent in the beginning of their protesting because of the silent sentinels. And two, because um, once violence, as Sheila mentioned, breaks out at these protests, once they are um, attacked by um, men, many of whom are returning soldiers from the war, uh, these women get jailed for obstructing traffic. And once they're jailed, um, first Alice and then uh, the rest of the women who accompany her begin a hunger strike, and that's the second reason that they're iron-jawed. Uh, they, they will not eat um, as a means of protest, and the hunger strike uh, sort of brings us back around to what Sheila was saying about religion and nonviolence. Uh, of course, both Gandhi and King um, participated in hunger strikes um, yes. in the periods in which they were protesting. So I, I think it's really interesting to see those kinds of, of connections throughout time um, and throughout place and, and race and class that this kind of nonviolence really has the power to break a lot of social barriers. So in addition to nonviolent protests um, breaking a lot of social barriers, the film covers a lot of social barriers that are still maintained, uh, namely racial division and generational division. Uh, so Sheila talked a little bit already about um, the film's scant coverage of race um, through two very short 
um, scenes of Ida B. Wells Barnett. Um, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about her first scene uh, where she objects to Alice Paul um, saying that Negro women need to march in the back during their first parade. When Paul talks to Barnett about what we need to do, Barnett responds, who's we? Women or just white women? Paul says, we have one agenda. Barnett responds, dress up prejudice and call it politics? I expected more from a Quaker. So while Harriet Blatch, either jokingly or seriously, doesn't seem to make the connection between um, Paul's Quaker religion and her politics, it's really interesting that uh, Ida Wells Barnett kind of throws it in her face. Uh, why do you guys think that uh, Barnett is more apt to point out this connection than perhaps Blatch's? Well, I mean, for one, I think um, it, it's more meaningful to Wells Barnett, right? Like this is something that has to do with her personal politics more than it does with Blatch's, um, you know, and it's, it's part of her history, um, as a, as a person, as a, as, I mean, Blatch's is, is Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter. Fine. She was there. She was involved, um, at least as a, uh, a spectator in the abolitionist movement, but, it, it wasn't necessarily um, something that was meaningful to her in the same way that abolition would be meaningful um, to a, to an African-American person. Um, I think that's, for me, that's part of it. The second part of this is I had to ask Victoria, and I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, but was did these women ever interact historically, or was this um, a, a convention for the movie? I actually have no idea. Yeah, I, I couldn't find anything either. <laughs> I, I would really like to look that up. I suspect, because actually I think that, and I listeners, please don't send me angry emails if I'm wrong about this, because I, I really don't know and I need to research this after the show. Um, but if I recall correctly, I think that Ida B. Wells Barnett is actually quite a bit older than Paul and company. Um, so... It feels like to me that that this is sort of shoehorning race in. Um, I, I'm not sure that I would rather them have not had race at all because obviously, as you said, um, this racial tension is something that continues on through the second wave. Um, this is why we get the development of... Uh, of black feminist thought, of womanist thought. Uh, we'll be talking right. in our next episode a little bit about um, both liberation and womanist theologies. So we'll we'll um, take up this racial division again. But yeah, I I'm glad that the film dealt with it a little bit, but it, it did feel a little uh, a little tokenistic to me. Right. I think I think just the amount of time that that her character that. Um, Ida Wells Barnett's character has in the movie <laughs> demonstrates that tokenism, but I'm with you. I, I think a 21st century movie has to address it in some way, even if just to point out like, hey, look, folks, we're still messing this up. You know, we messed this up with the Constitution originally. We're still not getting this right. Let's let's look and be a little more forward thinking as we're um, choosing our next bouts of activism here in the future. So in addition to these racial divisions, the film deals pretty heavily with a kind of feminist generational divide between um, Alice Paul and the other members of the NWP, the National Women's Party, and uh, the cabinet of NASA, the National Women's Suffrage Association. So some founding NASA members, um, namely the president, Carrie Chapman Catt, um, I think that Alice Paul is mm, an upstart, I think would probably be a good word. Um, they think that she is reaching too far, that she shouldn't push for a national amendment, uh, that these kinds of changes should go gradually, um, that she should maintain the respect of people like senators and, and of President Wilson. Um, so they think that she's moving too far too fast, and she thinks 
that they're they're out of touch they're the old guard they don't understand how politics works these days and like the racial division um, this problem of intergenerational feminism is one that in many ways still exists today um, in fact in 19 I think it's 1980 um, Betty Friedan publishes her second big book the the follow-up to 1963's The Feminine Mystique, and this book in 1980 is called The Second Stage. And Friedan says, I'm hearing from these young feminists who say, we're now in a third wave, a third stage of feminism, um, but that's silly, because I think we've barely entered a second one. Uh, these young women, they don't know their feminist history, they don't know what they're talking about. So this generational divide is something that really has lasted. Um, and I'd like to think through a little bit um, what this divide is about. Sheila, did you have any comments about how the film portrays uh, generational division? You know, it's interesting. I didn't really think of it in terms of that until we started talking about um, the generation gap today. And I, I certainly see that in comparing it to um, the second and third wave gap, because I, I think that's evident in a lot of places and um, the literature that I've read and even in the feminist classes that I've taken, um, professors especially seeming a bit put off by the third wave movement. Um, I was honestly, I was thinking a little bit more in terms of um, like an aristocracy, maybe that's not the right word, but you know, the entrenched folks who have been doing this for, for a while, um, not necessarily that they're older, but they know more because they have more experience. They know more because um, they are of a different society, but that could be incorrect. Is that, am I reading that wrong? No, I, I definitely think um, you're right to, uh, to make implications about privilege and class um, as far as knowledge is concerned there too. I mean, Obviously, all of these forms of prejudice are connected, right? That that is something that we know um, we know to be true, um, both currently and historically. So I I think that maybe if you um, if you're not as focused on current intergenerational problems, then it might be easy to miss um, how far back those roots go um, as far as the film is concerned. Sure. Uh, so I, I should also talk, in addition to discussing um, Chapman, Cat, and Blatch, who I, I think we've talked enough about, uh, there's one more historical character that the film covers uh, that I'd like to mention, and that's Inez Mulholland. Um, this film is pretty much my only exposure to Inez Mulholland, uh, a fact which I'm incredibly sad to admit. Uh, every time I watch this film, I say I'm going to research her more, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll actually do it this time. Uh, but Inez Mulholland worked primarily in the American West for, uh, for the National Woman's Party, and she went on all these speaking tours all over the place, um, mostly in Western territories, to tell women that, uh, that this was a national issue and that they... They all needed representation. And uh, Mulholland becomes a kind of feminist martyr of sorts because she's warned by her doctors not to go out on these speaking tours in the West where it's hot uh, because she has pernicious anemia. And she says, the cause is too important. I'm going to go anyway. Uh, and she does. And as far as I know, the, the scene in the film that... Um, that depicts the events leading up to her death is pretty historically accurate. She's standing in a podium under the hot sun, kind of struggling to speak, and her last public words are, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And then she drops um, and uh, dies at the, a hospital shortly after. Uh, so in that way, she becomes... Um, a martyr for the cause of women's suffrage. Um, newspaper articles are written about her, and this is one of the things that sort of gets the country woken up to the fact that this uh, that women's suffrage is a very personal, very serious issue. 
Did you know anything about Inez Mulholland before the film? I didn't know anything. This was a really interesting um, piece for me, and it played marvelously by Julia Orman, who I love. Um, So I was excited to see her in the film. Um, and, And I wondered a little bit, I didn't do my research here, but I wondered how, what their reaction was to, to that, um, her final speech and whether people would, people looked at that as a sign of weakness. You know, um, I know that's something that women fight, still fight constantly is, is how strong we are, um, strong in quotation marks, um, compared to men and, in standing up and doing these sorts of, of activities. Um, so it's good to hear for me that, um, this was a catalyst for the, for the movement, really. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Julia Orman's performance. I I like her too a lot, and uh, and thought that she was wonderful. In fact, um, th- this film is is really chock full of some of my favorite actresses. Yes. I have to fangirl for a moment. It's really fantastic, and if you haven't watched it yet, you really should. <laughs> like every wonderful female actor that I love is in it, except for maybe Judy Dench. But you know that's understandable. So. That would have been amazing, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in addition to, um, to Julia Ormond and Hilary Swank, um, I've already mentioned Margot Martindale, who many of you may know from The Americans and from Justified. Uh, she's in it. Also, um, who else? Angelica Houston. Oh, right. Angelica Houston uh, plays, very menacingly, plays uh, Carrie Chapman, Cat, (laughs) though she warms up at the end. Um, And fans of uh, Breaking Bad will recognize Laura Frazier, who um, who plays Lydia on that show, and who plays, oh gosh, what's her name? The sort of, uh, um, kind of the sex pot who, who also dates um, Ben Weissman. I can't remember her name in the film. Doris Stevens? Doris, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Laura Fraser plays uh, Doris Stevens. I should also say, now that we're calling out actors, that uh, Ben Weissman, the, uh, the love interest, Alice Paul's sort of sometimes uh, on-again, off-again love interest, is played by uh, Dr. McDreamy himself, <laughs> uh, Patrick Dempsey. Uh, and that might be a good transition into, um, into talking about the original characters in the film, people who didn't exist historically but who are added to the story, uh, added to the story to um, enrich it in a kind of um, narrative or artistic way. Uh, Sheila, can you... Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, and um, there are uh, two original characters in this show that are worth noting here. Um, One is Ben Weissman, as we've been talking about, Patrick Dempsey, um, played by Patrick Dempsey, who is a a Washington Post cartoonist and reporter. Is that right? Yes. Um, And he also, as Victoria's mentioned, plays Alice Paul's love interest on again, off again. and it is depicted, I think, in part <laughs> in choosing Patrick Dempsey to play this role um, as, a, as a little wishy-washy to me, but that's not as important as what he means, I think, to Paul's character. I think he's really here as a foil. Um, he does provide a little bit of publicity, pu- publicity or gives um, the women some ideas about how they could better publicize their movement. But apart from that, like he really does come into the film as... Um, as a, as a, sorry, having like mental issue here. Um, he comes into the film to give Paul something to choose between, um, which I think is a really interesting move on the part of the screenwriters. Um, at one point in the movie, Paul is talking to, um, Lucy Burns and, um, Burns is, pretty much telling her, you know, you have this guy, he's really great. Like, why don't you give it a chance? All the men I meet are jerks. And, you know, that conversation that tends to be had in a lot of, um, the rom-coms that are out there. 
and all the uh, men I meet are either idiots or terrified of me she says and (laughs) I thought oh my goodness that was my life in college (laughs) that was amazing to me yeah that I think a lot of us could say the same um yeah that was a really fantastic quote and a, a good moment I think between the two women um but but Paul comes back to her and says that a woman alone can choose anything she wants. I'm paraphrasing, but she says a woman alone can choose anything she wants. A woman with a family doesn't have that choice. And that really brings, it really struck close to home for me personally, um, having, as I said earlier, recently chosen to be a stay-at-home mom um, to my child. It's it's a difficult choice um, between family and passions or careers or ag- advocacy. And it's something for, for whatever reason that, um, you know, women still tend to have to choose more than men do in their, especially when it comes to career. So I thought that was an interesting choice. Like I said, on behalf of the screenwriters to bring this person in, um, to make Paul have to choose. And, um, the, the second character is Emily Light and she's, the wife of a senator in yes. the film. Yep. Um, who goes on to basically become Wilson's henchman and is kind of indirectly responsible for um, throwing these women in jail, including his own wife at some point. Um, she is, is in the movie, I think, as um, the embodiment of the woman in the house, right? Um, she's polite and very stately going from thing to thing with her children and the nanny. And, um, when she runs into the suffragists on the street is, is very kind, but not very interested, um, until she starts to think, well, maybe this is something that I wouldn't, you know, participate in personally, but I could give some money to. Um, and then things come to a head as they always do when her husband finds out that she's been donating money and he cuts her off and, um, one thing leads to another. And, um, up until that point, her life has been about her family. It's been about serving her husband and taking care of her children with, you know, with help from her staff until he threatens to take away her kids. You know, he, he basically tells her that he would divorce her and what judge would ever give her custody when she's out you know, trolloping around with these other women. And, and um, we should say um, that, that both of these children are daughters. Um, it, it's a pretty central point. Um, Emily says at one point, um, he, when he goes to visit, when Senator Layton goes to visit her at the jail, he says, I don't understand why you're doing this. And she said, uh, I, I'm only doing this for my daughters. So there's this realization that she has that this is really about f- rights for future generations of women. Which is really neat and something I was um, reading a little bit more from Doris Stevens um, in a, on a website called History Matters. And it's an excerpt from her, her story, Jail for Freedom. She says at the end of it, all the officers here at the prison know we are making this hunger strike that women fighting for liberty may be considered political prisoners. We have told them. God knows we don't want other women ever to have to do this over again. Uh, which I think solidifies that point. So there's a, a fictional embodiment of this um, realistic character who I, I doubt that Doris Stevens had women or had daughters at that point. So that's a good way to bring it home emotionally, I think. Yeah, and I, I really love everything you said about um, about the decisions that um, that these women in the film are forced to make. Um, Paul is sort of forced to choose between romance or independence and Emily Layton realizes that she can have both things, that the system is changing and she can have both things. Um, There's a really interesting visual um, that links these two women in the film that we should probably talk about. Um, There's a a musical montage of uh, romantic goings-on between uh, Ben Wiseman and Alice. He teaches her to dance and to drive, and while this is going on, um, the scene cuts back and forth between him doing these things with her and her uh, in a bathtub pretty obviously masturbating. Uh, This scene in the film got some uh, understandable critical response. Some people were very upset about it, called it 
um, gratuitous and basically said, you know, you, you have no right enforcing um, these kinds of visuals on a historical figure. Uh, what did you think about the sexuality in the film, Sheila? I it, it kind of struck me, we talked earlier about, you know, Ida Wells Burnett's place in the film, and it kind of struck me as a similar um, moment. It was a little bit of, you know, 21st century um, perspective. But I think it was useful, if not totally necessary, in demonstrating um, both Paul's passion toward life, you know, that this, that, that she's a passionate person all around. And especially as she's talking about having to make choices, you know, she's deciding to, to channel that passion into something that was going to benefit more than just her. Obviously she would be happy if she decided to settle down with Ben Weissman and could live a full life. And honestly, you know, he's a professional, um, who seems open-minded. She probably could go about her advocacy work to some measure, but, um, but she would have to do it at, at a you know good deal less than what she's doing now. He has a son whom she says needs a mother desperately. And um, a few times in the film, they talk about you know not allowing mothers of young children to participate in the protests because you know the the children need their mothers. Um, and so I, I think I think the sexual the sexual scene was necessary. Um, to, like I said, show her passion and that she was making a choice between things. Um, and also to deflate maybe the, the notion of these stodgy old ladies, you know, standing around in front of the White House um, and not seeming to do very much. I think a lot of people, myself included, had that sort of perspective when you only see black and white photos of people standing very still. It's not something that um, really gets your fires all riled up, so to speak. But I think that, I think that scene did a really good job of humanizing um, these women in total, um, not just as, you know, firebrands for a voice. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, while I was a little bit, the first time I saw the film, I, I sort of felt that 21st century intrusion yeah. um, that you mentioned. But I think I've finally landed on um, really appreciating the existence of that particular scene for the reason you mentioned, because um, it, it injects humanity um, in, in kind of the, the basest, most basic way possible, right? Um, through sexuality and through embodiment, something that, that connects um, most, if not all, humans together. Um, so I, I did think that that was, um, that that was interesting. And also, that scene visually is is tied to a scene with Emily in it. Uh, we cut a, a, a quick cut, a harsh cut, from Alice uh, enjoying herself in the bathtub to Emily bathing her girls. Um, so I, I thought that that was a really interesting visual to go from um, one kind of vulnerable female embodiment to another. Did you catch that cut? I didn't, but I'm glad that you mentioned it because it does. And I, and I mean, that continues to speak to my point. I know I'm harping on it about these choices that, you know, women were making, continue to make between family and, and career or family and advocacy. These are real choices that can really, um, that, you know, that, that require a lot of, of thought and, careful decision-making, um, even, even now. Uh, no, please don't apologize. I, <laughs> this is something that you should be harping on, not just because we're all interconnected and all our politics are interconnected, but because, I mean, you're living these choices. I mean, yeah. it, it's definitely something that you should be talking about and thinking about. Uh, th this might also be a good place to say that um, because of recording problems, we've lost Marie. Uh, so if listeners, if you're wondering why uh, our three voices have dropped down to two, uh, that's why, and we're very sorry, um, but we, we hope to get these recording problems, uh, connection problems, worked out by next time. Uh, so since it's just the two of us... Um, should we wrap up? Is there anything else about the film that you'd like to discuss, Sheila? 
No, I think it's a good time to wrap up. Like I said earlier, I could totally fangirl for a while. It's a fantastic film. I think it's really well done. The actors are tremendous. Um, Thank you for recommending it. I am glad that you enjoyed it. It is one of my favorites as well, and I think it's it, it's so little known. Um, I, I hope that more of you um, who are listening to this, that more of you seek it out and, and watch it, because it is a very good film. Actually, before we stop, there is one more thing I want to say. Um, building on your point, Sheila, about, um, about sort of personal home-based choices, Um, When the film does depict the ratification, the vote to ratify the 19th Amendment, the circumstances through which it does so are uh, interesting and notable, I think. So as political votes always do in movies, it comes down to one person, (laughs) uh, a a senator from Tennessee who, um, who was going to vote for the amendment, um, switches his vote at the last minute to vote against it. And during the middle of the proceedings, um, he is approached by a messenger who hands him a telegram from his mother. And he reads the telegram from his mother, uh, goes white in the face, and then <laughs> uh, stands up and, and votes for the amendment. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting choice, I thought. Yeah, completely unrealistic, but you had to love the drama. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't happen. Not real. (laughs) Not surprisingly. Um, But you can imagine there were some mothers who had some interesting conversations with their sons who were going to be voting on these matters. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And as well, they should have. Yes. Uh, But I I thought that that was a really interesting add-in because because of what it suggests about men's relationships to women's rights. Um, and, and you hear similar things like this, um, particularly in conversations about rape and domestic violence, um, that men, uh, if they're angry or if they're in some other, uh, in some other capacity, um, violent or domineering, that they should think of every woman as someone's mother or someone's sister. And, and this is a well-meaning argument, but frankly, a poor one. Uh, be- because obviously, it's not that men shouldn't be awful to women because uh, all women belong to some other man. Uh, <laughs> men shouldn't be awful to women because women are also humans, right? Right. Uh, so I, I, I chafed a little bit at the, uh, the sort of telegram from mom, deus ex machina, that, that gets thrown in there. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Um, That's a fair point. So we, we've been kind of all over the map today. Uh, we've, we've lost a panelist. I'm very sorry, listeners. Uh, but we should probably wrap up now, go into our third segment, the passing on recommendation segment. Uh, you first, Sheila. Okay, well, um, mine deviates a little bit. I think our, our goal in this segment is to talk a lot about um, feminist or, or items that maybe intersect more with feminism than not. But when we talk so much about social justice in this episode, I had to recommend to those who aren't aware of it yet, um, so Sojourner's Magazine. It started out as an actual magazine and, of course, is now on the web, um, sojourners.com. Like I said, it's not necessarily feminist, but um, if you're feeling at all intrigued by or called to a Christian social activism, um, it's a great place to start. It always runs a series of articles and has lots of um, really thoughtful um, commentaries about world events. Um, for example, among the headlines today, Pope Francis, we need you in Washington, D.C., which headlines an article about um, the government shutdown right now and the ethical ramifications of it. So it's a, it's a really fantastic place to start if you're feeling a little led after today's conversation. Thanks. Um, I I second that recommendation. Um, I, I love Sojourners, and uh, if any of you out there have not picked it up, um, I suggest that you do. It's a pretty great publication. So my recommendation is a lot less high-minded than that. Uh, 
I am recommending a Twitter hashtag, uh, something I never thought I would say. Uh, I am not on Twitter. I have avoided it because I feel like there are too <laughs> many uh, time sinks in my life already. But um, I became aware of this Twitter hashtag um, because lots of people were talking about it. And that's the hashtag 300 feminist sandwiches. Uh, and it uh, it's in response to a New York Post article, which I'll also link to um, in the recommendations segment, where this woman says uh, that she's making a sandwich every day for a year because her boyfriend told her that if she did this, if she made him a sandwich every day for a year, he would give her an engagement ring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep, pretty pretty much that noise of disbelief. Uh huh. So so the internet uh, responded uh, with whatever the internet equivalent of Sheila's scoff was. <laughs> uh, and, and part of that is this Twitter hashtag, 300 Feminist Sandwiches. And it's begun by um, Linda Holmes, who, to, to sort of nest a recommendation in the midst of my actual recommendation, uh, Linda Holmes writes for the NPR pop culture blog, Monkey See, and is one of the panelists on NPR's pop culture podcast, uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Uh, And she's great. She's super smart. She started this hashtag, and the first entry into it is uh, relevant to our film discussion. The first entry is uh, Lucretia Mozzarella and Tomato. (laughs) Uh, There there are lots of of other ones, too. Very funny jokes. our Bond Me, Ourselves, was another one I really enjoyed. Um, there are, of course, a lot of people who said, uh, hashtag make your own sandwich. Yeah. So uh, if you're interested uh, in, in uh, feminist puns, please check out hashtag 300 feminist sandwiches. Uh, and that is going to bring us to the end of episode 2.1. Uh, apologies again for our technical issues. We hope to be uh, a triad again next time. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For the absent Marie Hawes and for Sheila Woodruff, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss second wave feminism and liberation theologies. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things, love.